You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good to see everybody here this morning, and please turn to Romans chapter 4. We are going to be in Romans chapter 4 today. In 1896, a minister from Topeka, Kansas, published a book that has since sold more than 30 million copies. That's a lot of copies. Makes it one of the best sellers of all time. Uh, Probably many of you have read this book. How many of you read this book, In His Steps? Okay, not as many as I would have thought. Interesting. Even if you haven't read the book, you are probably familiar with the question that forms the premise of the book. In the book, a minister named Henry Maxwell challenges the members of his congregation to pledge that for an entire year, they would not do anything without first asking the question, and there it is on the cover, what would Jesus do? You guys have all heard that. What would Jesus do? WWJD, got the bracelet, got the t-shirt, bumper sticker, whatever, right? The idea was, and is, that if those who follow Jesus would try to be more like Jesus, then the church would be more what the church ought to be. Those in the book who take the pledge and, and fulfill it are transformed personally, and their influence changes their church. It changes the city in which they live, and it even extends beyond their community to the city of Chicago. Charles Sheldon used 1 Peter 2.21 as the scriptural basis for his novel. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Sheldon's book has impacted many people with this challenge, and I believe it is worthwhile for the Christian to consider the question, what would Jesus do before taking action? And I encourage those of you who have not read that book yet to get a copy and read it. But I think that there are limitations in asking the question, what would Jesus do? Think about Jesus' life for a moment and ask yourself this question. What did Jesus do? Okay. One day, the answer to the question of what did Jesus do was Jesus walked on water. There you go. Another day, the answer was, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five small loaves of bread and two fish. And on still another day, the answer to the question of what did Jesus do was, Jesus died on a cross to take away the sin of the world. And those answers are never going to be the actions that we take when we ask the question, what would Jesus do, right? If the answer to the question is, well, Jesus would walk on water, you're out, sorry, not going to happen for you. But at the same time, and another way I say there's limitations to asking this question, there are things that we face, this is kind of a technical thing, 
There are things that we face that Jesus never did. Oh, we say, well, how's that true? Hebrews says he was tempted in all points as are we. Mm, Bear with me for a minute. Jesus never needed forgiveness. But all of us do. Jesus never had to make the decision to believe in himself in order to have a right relationship with God the Father. All of us face that decision. And Jesus never had to concern himself with how he could be justified in God's sight because he was already justified in God's sight, declared righteous because he had never compromised his perfect righteousness. He didn't have to be justified because he was never unjustified. Unlike us, all of us, you and I, on the other hand, most certainly do need to concern ourselves with how we can be declared righteous in God's sight. For all of us, Romans chapter 4 gives us some insight about our justification, describing us in verse 12, and this is why I started off with the book In His Steps as the opening illustration, describing us in verse 12 of Romans 4 as those who follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham. Now, I would not suggest that the question, what would Abraham do, is a suitable substitute for what would Jesus do. But Paul's writing about Abraham in Romans 4 does help us understand better what it takes to be rightly related to God and to live out the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Today's message is called, In the Steps of the Faith. And we'll start in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. There we go. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found... For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now to be justified means to be declared righteous. We'll be hearing those terms several times throughout the message. They mean the same thing. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It doesn't mean to have actual righteousness, but to be declared righteous. And the way that that is significant for us is to be declared righteous by God himself. It doesn't do any good for us to declare our own righteousness, for you to declare mine or me to declare yours. It is for God to declare us to be righteous. Romans chapter 4 seems to be Paul's explanation of Romans 3.28, which said, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he uses the example of Abraham to explain this. 
Now, he's speaking partly to the Jewish Christians in Rome, as, as was evidenced there in verse 1. Uh, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? But as we'll see, this passage applies to all of us. The use of Abraham also demonstrates that the basis of justification was the same in the Old Testament as it is now in the church age. Which, in which Paul was writing. How are we declared righteous by God? Can we do enough good works to cancel out the unrighteousness of our sin? Is there a scale somewhere on which God compares our good deeds to our bad deeds? And as long as our good deeds are greater than our bad deeds, then he declares us to be righteous? No. Even one sin, one act that is contrary to any of the relevant forms of God's law, renders us unrighteous before him, and no amount of good deeds can overcome that. In Abraham's example, God declared Abraham righteous on the basis of his faith and not of his works. Verse 3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now here's the tricky part. How do we know that Abraham believed God? Well, he did what God told him to do. That's how we know that he believed him. Okay, well, God, I don't understand it, but I'll do it because you said it and I believe you. Hebrews chapter 11 tells of at least three things Abraham did because he believed God. First one was that he left his home and he went to a place a long ways away that he'd never been before because God promised him that the land that he would go to, the land that God would show him, would belong to him and to his descendants. That's the first thing. Second thing was he lived in that land as a foreigner, coming into conflict with the people who lived there. He even had the fight to retain what belonged to him. It wasn't easy living in that land that God told him was going to be his. And the third thing that he did, probably the most outstanding thing that we think about when we think of Abraham, he offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. I mean, he got him all the way up on the mountain, tied down to the altar, knife in the air, ready to go before God stopped him. Abraham was going to do it, even though God's promise to Abraham to become the father of many nations had to be fulfilled through Isaac. There wasn't any other way. There wasn't any other son that was going to fulfill that promise. It had to be through Isaac. You know, talk about the faith of Abraham. Listen to this. Hebrews eleven nineteen says that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead in order to keep his promise. Abraham had never seen that. I mean, we, we know of several instances of people being raised from the dead in the scriptures, plus that of Jesus himself. But Abraham had never encountered that as far as we know. But he considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. And that's how God was going to keep his promise. That's, that's faith. And because Abraham had faith, he did a lot of good things. But it was his faith and not his good works that caused God to justify him. Paul goes on to say that works are associated with wages, a fact that is known to anyone who's ever held a job, okay? If you have a job and you do the work, you expect to be paid. Once you do the work, your employer owes you for the work that is done. And we call those wages earnings because you earned them by working. Justification 
can't be on the basis of work because you never could earn it. On the other hand, faith is associated with grace. Ephesians 2.8 states the relationship this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Romans 4.5 says that God rewards the faith of even the ungodly with the gift of justification. And if you want to hear or rehear an entire sermon on that topic, go to our church website, find the sermon for December 10th of 2017, whole thing about God's gift of justification. The point is that our sincere faith results in the application of God's grace as he grants to us as a gift what we never could deserve, the declaration, his declaration, that we are righteous. And God's declaration that we are righteous, again, our justification, in other words, means that we also have forgiveness of our sins. Being justified means that God no longer counts our sin against us. And the way that works is that instead of counting it against us, he made Jesus pay the penalty that was ours to pay. He assigns the righteousness that belongs to Jesus to us, and he declares us to be righteous in our justification because of our faith. Our faith results in the application of God's grace by which our sins are forgiven. So on the screen there it says faith, and you've got an arrow to grace, and you have an arrow to forgiveness. And that's how that works. Living in the steps of the faith provides justification and forgiveness instead of condemnation and punishment. Let's go on to verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. If forgiveness is granted on the basis of being justified by faith, which is the premise here, then who may receive that forgiveness? Is, is the group of people who may obtain forgiveness through faith restricted to a particular category? Paul's particular question addresses whether this forgiveness is available only to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, or if it also extends to the Gentiles. Abraham received justification by faith, and wasn't he circumcised? Well, yes, he was but not until after God declared him righteous on the basis of his faith. In fact, God didn't command Abraham to be circumcised until 14 years or more after God credited Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. And so circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham being justified by faith. Paul says that this happened specifically so Abraham would not be the spiritual father of the Jewish people only, but of all who would follow Abraham's example of faith, whether they were circumcised or not. 
circumcision wasn't a requirement of Abraham's justification, nor is it a requirement for justification for anyone in the church age. That would be now. Justification, forgiveness of sin, and salvation are available to all who come to God in faith as specified by him. And we'll talk about what that faith involves toward the end of the message. But this means that salvation in Christ isn't just for the Jews. Gentiles may receive salvation through faith in Christ also. The Jews are not excluded from this salvation either, but they were not guaranteed salvation, forgiveness, or justification simply because they were circumcised. Circumcision was given as a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants and a seal of the righteousness that was granted through faith. The popular teaching of Paul's day was that as long as a man was circumcised, he was favored by God and would be spared condemnation in the final judgment. Paul makes it clear in Romans 4.12 that even the circumcised Jew would need to follow in the steps of the faith of Abraham in order to be justified by God. So outward circumcision was no longer an issue, but only the inward circumcision that Paul talked about back in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Living in the steps of the faith is required for all people in order to receive God's approval. Let's go to verse 13. Kind of a long uh, scripture passage here, 13 through 22. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Long passage. We're going to sort it down into three basic things. As we've been studying Romans, we've talked a lot of, uh, about God's law in its various forms. One form, is, uh, one form of God's law is as... I'm going to start over with that. One form is God's law as it is written on the hearts of men. Uh, in other words, the innate knowledge of basic morality that we have as a consequence of being created in God's image. Another form is the Old Testament law as given through 
Moses. And the third form we talked about is the New Testament body of instruction that is consistent with righteous living. Paul's point in Romans 4.13 is that none of these are the basis of the promise given to Abraham. Instead, the promise was granted on the basis of the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham believed God, or he never would have been a recipient of the promise. Abraham was justified by God, declared righteous by God, or he never would have been a recipient of the promise. If we could receive God's promises on the basis of fulfilling the requirements of his law, then faith would mean nothing, and the promise, which is based on faith, would be nullified. All of us, for all of us who have broken God's law as it applies to us, it is impossible to receive God's promise by keeping his law. Now, just as we saw earlier, that faith leads to grace, which then leads to forgiveness, we now see in this passage that faith leads to grace, which leads to receiving God's promise. For Abraham, that promise included the promised land. Descendants too numerous to count, God's blessing and justification, and ultimately the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as one of his descendants. But the order is faith leads to grace, which results in receiving the promise. And for Abraham, this, the, the promises that God made to him, especially those about descendants too numerous to count, ultimately the Messiah being one of his descendants, that was an impossible promise if it came from anyone other than God. For at least 25 years from the time God first called Abraham, God promised Abraham that he would have his own biological son with his wife Sarah. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him. Sarah was 65 even in their time, they were considered to be too old at that point to have children. And Sarah never had. I mean, she, she was barren, like Elizabeth, when we talked about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, right? She was barren. By the time Isaac was born, Abraham was 100. Yeah. Want to have your kid in high school when you're 118? I don't think so. Anyway, graduate in high school, right? Abraham was 100 years old. By the time Isaac was born, Abraham considered himself as good as dead, as far as the possibility of becoming a parent was concerned, Paul says that Abraham believed God, but it was in hope against hope. You know how that is? You ever done that? In hope against hope? Oh, I want to believe. I have this belief. I, I trust you, God, but I don't understand how. I don't see how it could ever come about. Because everything I know, everything that I've ever experienced, everything that the world tells me is, this isn't going to happen. And as far as Abraham having a son, that was exactly how it was going to take place. In hope against hope, there was no natural reason to believe that God's promise would come true. Yet Abraham continued to believe that God would provide. Oh, and they went through some issues, you might remember. Sarah talked Abraham into having a child with her servant Hagar. But that child, Ishmael, was not the child God had promised. And so it didn't count. Finally, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. And I apologize to all the 90-year-old women. I'm sorry that this even happened for Sarah, but hey, it was good for them, right? Sarah gave birth to Isaac, and that was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. 25 years, Abraham had to stick it out, and he never lost faith. 
In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, Paul describes God as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And if you think about that, that's, those are two impossible things, but not when you're talking about God. Only God can raise the dead back to life. Only God can create something from nothing. And in Abraham's case, doing the impossible, this means that only God could fulfill the promises he made to Abraham both in having Isaac with Sarah and in making him the father of many nations, including those who would be Abraham's spiritual descendants through faith in Jesus Christ. And that includes all of you who are in Christ here right now. You are Abraham's spiritual descendants. Abraham got to see the birth of Isaac. He even lived until Isaac was 75. That's pretty remarkable. But Abraham never got to see the many nations of which God had spoken. Abraham had to take the rest of God's promise on faith. Paul describes Abraham's faith like this. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now these are some of the essential elements of the faith that provides justification. In regard to the promises of God, we must believe that God is able to fulfill them. But more than that, and what is clearly seen in the life of Abraham, is the belief, the certainty even, that not only is God able to keep his promises, but that God will keep his promises. And we'll talk about that more as it relates to us in a few minutes. Keep in mind that walking according to God's law will not result in seeing the fulfillment of God's promises unless you've done so perfectly, and you haven't, and neither have I. But walking in the steps of the faith does result in seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. Go to verse 23. I'm behind again. Verse 23. Talking about Abraham, it says, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, I know for a fact, there it goes, I know for a fact that Abraham was not the first person in history to be justified by God on the basis of his faith. I know that. Paul uses Abraham as the example here because of the way his situation illustrates the working of faith for both Jews and Gentiles. But we can think of others. Genesis 4.4 says that the Lord had regard for Abel, and his offering, in contrast to Cain, his brother. God was not pleased with Cain, but God was pleased with Abel. Abel received God's approval, but Cain did not. Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That, this means that Enoch was, we, we call it being translated. He, he passed straight out of this life and into the next without having to experience death apparently because God was pleased with him. And that was his faith that made God pleased. Genesis 6, 8 
tells us that Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was justified by faith. Now you can read all about these people and more in Hebrews chapter 11, where they are listed as outstanding examples of faithful people. So you want to see the accounts there. But I just, I pulled those out of Hebrews 11 as examples of people who were justified by faith before Abraham ever came on the scene. And then there's a long line of people after Abraham who were justified by faith who are mentioned either by name or category in Hebrews chapter 11. You've got Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. You've got the whole category, the judges there, David, Samuel, the prophets. They're all mentioned in Hebrews 11, even by name, Rahab, you know, remember what her profession was, right? Rahab, yeah, she was a prostitute in Jericho when the Israelites came to conquer the city. Even Rahab had faith that not only resulted in her justification by God, Rahab was allowed to be included in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. The point is, that this idea of faith being credited to a person as righteousness wasn't just for Abraham. Verse 24 says that it was for our sake too. Now the specifics of faith given in verse 24 here are brief. It says faith will be credited as righteousness to those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now this clearly, you take that statement apart, this clearly refers to faith in God. Okay, so justification by faith comes to those who have faith in God. Now, if you really wanted to water this down, you would say, perhaps, well, all that really means is that you just have to believe that God exists. So everyone who believes that God exists is justified, forgiven, and saved, right? No, not at all. First, there's a lot going on here. Even in that statement, we have to think about what it means. First, it means that you have to believe in the God revealed in the Bible, not just some God somewhere. Okay? Well, I believe there's a God. Well, it matters which one. Okay? It matters which one. You have to believe in the God revealed in the Bible. Second, it means that you have to believe everything that God says about himself in his word. If he really is God then everything he says is true, and you can't pick and choose which parts of his word you'll believe. you got to take it all. Third, it means that you have to believe specifically that God raised Jesus from the dead after the crucifixion. Oh, and see, just mentioning that event, that opens up the door to a whole host of things that you have to believe about Jesus. You have to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he was the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the only means of salvation, and that his death on the cross was for the specific purpose of obtaining that salvation for you. It means that you have to believe in the promises that Jesus made about returning someday to carry out final judgment. No, it doesn't say any of that there, but that's all implied by that statement. It means that you have to believe that when Jesus returns... Those who belong to him will be resurrected to everlasting life, while those who do not belong to him will be resurrected to everlasting punishment. And it also means, and here's, if you want to focus in on something for a second, focus in on this. It also means that the belief that you have in all these things, and as many others as would be implied or or necessary, 
is something more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of their truth. You can't just say, well, yeah, I, I believe that there is a God. And I believe that he's the God of the Bible and he did all that stuff. And I believe that he raised Jesus from the dead. And I believe that Jesus is coming back. And, and, that's, and I believe all that. You can't stop here, is what I'm saying, with, your, with just your intellectual understanding. I asked earlier, how do we know that Abraham believed God? We know that he believed because he obeyed. Why did he obey God? Because in his faith, in his belief, he submitted himself to God's complete control. And so here's the question. Can you have a belief, a faith, resulting in justification without submitting yourself to God's complete control? The answer is no, you cannot. In order to have a faith that, that is the basis of your justification, where God says you're righteous... You don't, didn't earn that. You're not righteous on your own. You, you, you don't deserve to be righteous. But on the basis of your faith, my grace, you're righteous. Can you have that without fully submitting yourself to God's complete control? And the answer is no. There are no compromises here. No negotiating for terms. No loopholes to find. True saving faith requires complete surrender to God's authority. The life that you then live will be characterized as following in the steps of the faith. Now this entire chapter has been about faith. Using Abraham as the example, Paul has shown that we are justified in God's sight by faith and not by works. God declares us to be righteous through our faith as an expression of his grace to us, the gift. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it. And God's justification means that we're forgiven. Our debt has been taken away so that we, have, we look forward to eternal life instead of eternal punishment. And Paul has also shown that the ritual of circumcision was not the basis for Abraham's justification and forgiveness. God credited Abraham's faith to him as righteousness years before he instituted circumcision as the token of the covenant and the seal of Abraham's righteousness. Many through history, have been circumcised without receiving justification because they didn't have faith, even among the Jews. And many, through history, have been justified without having been circumcised because they did have faith. And finally, Paul showed that it wasn't on the basis of fulfilling God's law that Abraham received the promise God made. It's too late for any of us to follow all of God's requirements for righteousness. We've all failed. Instead, God offers his promises on the basis of faith, again expressing them by his grace as a gift to us. God's promises to us include the impossible things for us of eternal life, no condemnation, forgiveness of sin, resurrection from the dead. And I say these things are impossible, but not for God. God is the doer of the impossible, and he will fulfill Every promise. And then this last section talks about it's, it's not just for Abraham's sake that all these things were said, it's for our sake also. Well, verse 25 tells why all this is important. Jesus was delivered over for our transgressions. Your sin and my sin 
made it necessary for Jesus to come to earth, to live as a human being, and die on a cross. If he hadn't done all that, our only prospect for the future would be an eternity of torment and separation from God in hell. Verse 25 also, tells, or also says that Jesus was raised because of our justification for the purpose of bringing that about. Our justification would not be possible without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 tells us that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless. We're still dead in our sins. But God is the doer of the impossible. Christ has been raised from the dead, and it is God who has raised him. That makes faith valuable, but it also makes faith necessary. Because Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose from the dead, we have the hope of justification, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life. And you can say also that we have the promise of justification, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life, but only if we have the faith that God requires. And so I'd ask the question, do you believe that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that Jesus not only died and was buried, but also that he was raised from the dead by God's power? And if you believe all that, and everything that that's based on, are you prepared to submit yourself completely to God's will and his control, walking in the steps of faith? If you have this kind of faith, but you've never repented of your sin, you've never publicly confessed your faith to others, you've never been baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, I'd ask you to come forward now as we sing our invitation song.